We're in the, uh, the middle of a series during this Lenten season on the subject of renewal, on renewal. And my contention with you is that we desperately need God to renew us as people. Not just in Lent, certainly, we, we, but, but constantly. We, we need God's continual renewal of our hearts because we're so prone to returning back to the things of the world that don't actually give us life. So often our lives, instead of being this, this persistent pursuit of Jesus, end up being this, this casual, um, intermittent, peripheral, kind of accidental approach to God and to Jesus. So often we, we spend a lot of our lives looking for life, because on, honestly we're all looking for life in one way or another. We're looking for life in all these other places rather than God. Even though for those of us who know him and who have been called by him, those of us who would claim to follow Jesus, we know that life can be found nowhere else. But we're so quick to turn away from God and to embrace these other things, whether it be our our career or uh, knowledge or money or comfort or beauty. You can fill in the kind of the idols of the age that we live in and inhabit. So this Lenten season is a time for us of detecting, of rejecting, and of forsaking those parts of our hearts where we are pursuing life outside of God. And we call that confession. We call that the, uh, the truth-telling to God about who we are and about what our life has been like. And that's the beginning of this process of then seeking renewal in Him, of seeking a new way, uh, a cleaner way, a more pure way, of being God's chosen people. So we need this desperately for our vision here at Church of the Cross, just to personalize it to this community for a moment. Our our heart is to be a missional family in the city of Boston, to bear witness to Jesus in word and in deed um, in the city of Boston, in the city of Boston where Jesus is not exactly that popular. Um, In a place where... where Now, Boston, I'm not singling Boston out really among all the cities of the world, this would be the case. But a place where uh, the life of God is marginalized. Boston's particular idol is knowledge, the intellect, the pursuit of truth outside of God or knowledge outside of God. But this is the call, is to be a missional family, to be a, a, a light set on the hill in a city like this. You know, sometimes we think that those who are called to go serve Jesus overseas, go be a missionary overseas, um, have to be extra special Christians. They have to have this kind of um, intensity about them and this, this, this uh, seriousness about them to, to, to actually be able to go and to survive in a foreign land where Jesus is not known. And I want to say that, that that kind of impression is exactly true of what's needed of the people of God in a city like Boston as well. There's a need for us to be renewed in him, to have his life flowing in us and out of our hearts. And there's a, there's a need for this in life more generally, for life in God. And I say this to those of you who might be here who are exploring Jesus, who are asking questions about the Christian faith, to say that, that no matter where we turn for life, and we've all got our places, that we literally cannot find it apart from finding it in God. So we need this kind of renewal in God more generally, beyond just the church, but in all the world, because all of us are made from him and for him. This is a quote from uh, Eugene Peterson, who I've learned a lot from, a biblical scholar and a pastor. He says, we are after something. More life than we get simply by eating three meals a day, getting a little exercise, and having a decent job. We're after the God-originated, 
and God-shaped life, a holy life. We're after the God-originated and God-shaped life, a holy life. Now, whether we could articulate that for ourselves, and I imagine some of us here could, or maybe some of us here couldn't, the fact of the matter is, is that those who've been made by God, we are longing for this God-originated, God-shaped life, the holy life. That's what we're longing for. And that's when we talk about renewal, that's what we're talking about. Forsaking the ways of life outside of God and actually embracing again in a new way the life of God himself to be living in us and then through us for the sake of the world. So we've looked for a few weeks or a couple of weeks now at at aspects of renewal. The first one was the reality coming back to the heart that God is for us. We looked at that out of Romans 8. That the great God who is holy, who's made everything, is for us in such a way that he didn't withhold from us anything, but gave up his own son, the most precious possession that he had. Gave up himself so that we might know him. So God is for us, is the central and the first insight of any kind of renewal in him. And then the second week, Ben took us to Philippians 3. And we looked at having then seen that God is for us, this pursuit that develops in response to that love that God has for us of forgetting what's behind and pressing on or straining forward to what lies ahead, orienting our whole life after this one who now we know is more valuable than anything in the world around us and pursuing him with all that we have, wholeheartedly alive, pursuing him. So this is the heart, the kind of the heart that's been renewed. God loves me. Some of us just need to hear that. We all need to hear that again and again and again. And then out of that love, now I pursue this God who loves me as the most valuable treasure and person in all the world. Tonight we're going to turn now to talking about having come to that place of a heart being made alive in God, then to loving what God loves, which is a part of this aspect of renewal. As we know how much God loves us and as we begin to pursue him, then our desires, our affections, our longings begin to change and we start to love what God loves and our will and our mind get engaged in this life in God, in pursuing him. And for this, we're going to turn to 1 Peter 1, which we heard read for us tonight by Libby. Um, 1 Peter 1, which begins uh, um, with this statement of God's blessing on his people with a recounting of all that God has done for us in Christ. It talks about, he talks about in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 13 is actually where we're beginning. Those are verses 3 through 5. Verse 13 starts with the word therefore. And that word always points us back. And it points us back to this reality of what God has done for us in Jesus. A couple weeks ago, Ben talked about the indicative versus the imperative. The reality that um, first things are said of us. They're declared of us. They're made true for us. These are declarative statements that you have been bought with a price, that you are God's chosen people, that you have been redeemed out of slavery and brought into life, that God is now your father. Those things are true, that you've been set apart as holy. And those things form the basis for then these, these commands that are given to the people of God through his word, the imperatives. Now, as those people about whom those things are true, now live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. 
Live in this way. But we can't hear the live in this way if we haven't first heard the reality of who God has made us in Jesus and been really made alive again to these great truths of God's love for us in his son Jesus. So I say that to you, those of you seeking after him, asking questions, not yet having come to him in life, to say that you, you really can't understand and hear these statements of what it means to be holy or to follow after God, which is where we're going. Apart from hearing first, the reality that God loves us in Jesus and that God has made us his own in Jesus. So to listen to, to um, calls upon our life to live this way or to be this way or to do these things makes absolutely no sense apart from the heart that's been renewed in Jesus, the heart that's been made known in Jesus. So if you don't know of that renewal, if you don't know of that, that, that truth, of that love that God has for you in Christ, of the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus, then that's the only thing to take away from this time. That's the point of this word, therefore. I think it's up, it's supposed to be up, there it is. Um, this is the text that we're in. The therefore, the beginning. It's to point us back to all that God has done for us in Jesus. So then the, the next statement, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. The image given here is is girding up the loins of your mind. Now, that's not an expression that we use today a whole lot. I recognize. But let me give you the picture from the world in which Peter is writing. It's the the fact that um, men used to wear long robes or tunics or garments that, that went down below their knees or to their ankles. And that when it was time for somebody to respond, for somebody to get on the move, they had to gird up their loins. They had to gird up, grab up that robe so that their legs would be free to run. And they could run. Now, uh, perhaps a better expression for this today is to roll up your sleeves. Same kind of idea. What do we think when you think, roll up my sleeves? Okay, I'm getting ready to do something. I'm getting ready to get engaged. I'm getting ready to act. And so Peter uses this imagery for us to talk about our minds and says, gird up the loins of your mind. Or as it's been translated here, prepare your minds for action. Get ready to be engaged. Assume the posture of engagement. Now I have to say to this that what this means is that the the Christian life, the life in God, the abundant life that we're seeking to live is not passive. Contrary sometimes to popular opinion. There are truths and realities that God is primary. God is sovereign. God's action upon you is more important and more foundational than anything that you will ever do. And that is true. But sometimes we take those truths of God's primariness and we we then turn them into half-truths that says, well, then all that's left upon you and me is just to kind of sit back and wait for God to move. Wait for God to do something. And we then enter into the Christian life of discipleship with a passive posture, a a posture of disengagement. And then sometimes when that gets more and more warped and sick in our minds, we, we then begin to excuse or to blame our own apathy or casualness or passiveness um, or, or lack of fervor in the Christian life on the fact that, God, you just haven't shown up. You haven't acted. Instead of upon the reality of my own sin and my own slothfulness. So the first thing I want you to hear as we think about this life in God is that it is a life of action. It's a life of being engaged, rolling up your sleeves and ready to jump in with both feet. And he says also being sober-minded. It's a life 
that requires the best of our thinking. It's interesting, he says, gird up the loins of your mind, your mind. Be sober-minded, your mind. Paul, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's a battle for your mind in this world. He's saying, I want your minds to be ready. I want your minds to be clear thinking. So let's not be anti-intellectual in the Christian faith, in discipleship. Let's not be only intellectual, but let's say that the mind has an important part to play in the life that God is calling us to live. It's key. So Peter gives us this picture of being ready. And the first thing that he says, the first imperative, is to set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. This is the first thing that he wants us to do after being renewed by the life of God, by understanding his love for us, after then seeking after him, then as we think about being engaged in the world around us, the first thing is to set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Where else is your hope set? The implication of what Peter's saying is that we are quick to set our hope on other things. We're, we're quick to place our hope in the things of this world. Maybe it's set upon um, our family. Maybe it's set upon our career. Maybe it's set upon finding um, a wife or a husband. Where is your hope set? He says, set it fully upon this grace that is to be brought to you. Say it in a, a different way to say that there is, no, there is no you apart from who you are in Jesus. We're so quick to kind of uh, to, to, to make divisions in our life and to say, God, I'm going to give you this much of who I am. I'm going I'm to set my hope upon you in, in about 66% I'm going to give to you. And the other 34%, I'm going to give it over to my career. I'm going to kind of hedge my bets. I'm going to be a little bit duplicitous here. I'm going to pursue you, God, this, this, to this degree, but I'm going to keep pursuing these other things just in case you're not really there and you're not really going to come through with what I want. I'm going to put my hope in these other things. And, and Peter's saying, no, no, no. Set your hope fully. Now that doesn't mean not to pursue these other things under God as a redeemed child of Him with vigor and with zeal, with faithfulness as a steward of all that He's given to you. But it means to receive, to to, to have your hope for who you are and for all that life is to be set only upon what God is to bring to you in Jesus. To set it there and there alone. To live with the end in sight. This end that shapes you and defines you and begins to to shape your present. So with your hope set fully, verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Obedient children. just, Just for a moment on that phrase, that implies a humility, a lowliness, a meekness, a recognition that we are not our own gods. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Children in Greco-Roman culture, maybe not so much in 21st century American culture, but in Greco-Roman culture in the first century, were known for obedience to their fathers. Obedient children. Those whose, whose hearts have been humbled before the Lord. 
Do not be conformed. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This call not to be conformed is like the call that God gave to his people back in the Old Testament. Listen to these words from Leviticus 18. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. So don't be like the land from which I'm rescuing you, Egypt. Don't be like the land to which I'm taking you, Canaan. But you shall follow me. You shall become like me. That same idea is picked up here by Peter as he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You know, John Stott wrote this book. We've talked about it a fair bit here. His last book called The Radical Disciple. And the first chapter in that book is entitled Nonconformity. Nonconformity. That this task of the Christian disciple is not to be conformed. And he picks out four things. He, 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 um, he picks out materialism, pluralism, um, ethical relativism, and narcissism. He says these are four areas where we are tempted as the church to just get, to, to start looking like the world around us. He says not, not conform to those things. Do not be conformed to those things. The passions of your former ignorance, of who you were before you knew this abundant life in God. And isn't that always the temptation as we pursue life outside of him? Is that we start to conform to our world's ways of seeking life. So we start to take up our career as if it was everything that we had to live for. Or we start to take up the pursuit of knowledge as if that was the key to life. And these are the ways that we used to live outside of God. These were the passions of our former ignorance. It's to start to take those things up again. And Peter's saying, no, 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 don't be conformed to those things. Don't be conformed to those things. That was when life was all about me. That was when I viewed the world as, as a place for me to use to get what I wanted. That was when I viewed other people as people, as things to be used so that I could get to what I really wanted in life. That was me and my former ignorance. Don't be conformed to those things anymore, he says. How often do we live in life as though God is not there? as practical atheists. Confessing him, proclaiming him, praising him, praying to him in public, but then day to day in our lives, just living as if he didn't make a difference to the way that I spend my time, to the things that I look at on the internet, to the way that I interact with my boyfriend or girlfriend. How often do we, do we live in that way as if God is not really there? Peter's saying, that's, that's not the call. That's not the way. That's not the way. Pursue this other way. All of that is seeking life outside of God. So where this all drives to is verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This God who loves you is holy. Now, I think sometimes when we think of holiness, we think of something that's really boring. Something that's really bland. Maybe something that's kind of uninteresting. Unexciting. All those 
all those words that kind of come around this concept of holiness need to just be literally jettisoned from our minds when we begin to think about this concept of holiness. Because he who called us is holy. This God who called us is holy. He's other. He's awesome. He's mysterious. And he's full of life. He is life flowing out of him into his creation. This is who God is. And we're called to be like him. We're called to be like him. There are so many counterfeits to this way of holiness. So many things, again, that pursue this boring, this manageable, this this way that we know. And those counterfeits are dead ends. They're not true life. Think about the way of life that God displays for us in his son Jesus, this way of the cross, for just a moment. Is that the way that the world would tell us to live? Is that something that we might expect from the world and its ways? Absolutely not. It's completely other than. It's different from in every way. God is, God is altogether different from our expectations. And he is holy. And we're called to pursue him in holiness. To be holy. And he says to be holy in all your conduct. We're so good sometimes at giving God against certain parts and keeping other parts for ourselves. Uh, I learned a lesson in kind of comprehensive identity from, um, from Texas A&M people. I don't know if you've ever been around those who love uh, the Aggie world and Aggie because somebody from Texas is smiling. That's good. Um, but when I was a guide in the backcountry, I took a group of uh, college students on the trail in the backcountry, and they were all uh, students at Texas A&M. And I was... For the first, I mean, maybe you've never had this experience, so if you don't, this illustration makes no sense to you. But I was just shocked at the amount at which they lived, breathed, slept, talked, and thought Aggie culture. There was little, I mean, they all wore the big rings, those who graduated at least, you know, all wore the big ring. There was just a, a whole different way of life that I'd never experienced before. And that, that's the kind of picture for us as followers of Jesus of holiness infiltrating every aspect of who we are. The way that we interact with one another, the way that we interact with our neighbors, the way that we um, love our children, love our wives, love our husbands, the way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our time, the way that we read, the things that we do on the computer, everything is to be brought under this call to be holy like our God is holy. In our mind, what we think about, in our tongues, what we say, how we speak, how we speak about people when they're not in our presence. In our bodies, what we do with our bodies, how we interact with sexuality. And in our hearts, in our affections, in what we long for, what we desire. A comprehensive vision and view of holiness is in view here, that we are to be holy as our God is holy. And if we were to read on in this text, we'd see, I think, a hint at what this means, what holiness, one of the things that defines it more than anything else in verses 22 to 25, where Peter goes on and and says, um, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. To be holy is to be like God. God is love. God is pouring out his love in the triune Godhead and then upon his creation and upon each of us. And we're called then to love as God loves Let me close by asking you a question. Is the Christian life easy or hard? Is the Christian life easy 
or hard. Doesn't Jesus say, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He does. He does. But don't we also hear in the biblical text of of exhortations to strive? Don't we hear of metaphors of athletic competitions and battles that require great exertion and effort and energy? Don't we hear um, the writer of the Hebrews saying, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood? Is the Christian life hard or easy? The answer is both. The dichotomy is a false one. But the biblical witness gives us this picture of a a yielded life in which God is primary and working and moving in us. But also of a life of the sleeves being rolled up, of the loins being girded up, of being sober-minded and ready for action, to engage at every point and at every turn with all of our will, with all of our heart, with all of our strength in this life of being holy in the love of God and pursuing that with everything that we have. And that requires energy and effort and intentionality. And it's everything that is the opposite of the passive, casual, medium, lukewarm approach to seeking after the Lord. When we think about renewal, we think about God's love for us first. Our response to seeking after Him with all that we are. And then this love of what God loves, this love of holiness beginning to form in us comprehensively on Monday afternoons and Wednesday mornings and Saturday mornings for all of our lives. I pray that we'll seek this in him by his grace as Church of the Cross, as a missional family in the city of Boston. Amen.